You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good afternoon and welcome to America's Web Radio. And the breaking news is that uh, Mr. Sanders has backed out, and in my opinion, at America's Web Radio, he was as goofy backing out as he was staying in. And, uh, you know, he, he just doesn't understand the American system, I don't believe, and uh, wants to change it, and I don't believe he had the... the wheel power to do it so uh, he's better off turning it over to biden i guess and and uh, i'm sure mr trump's chomping at the bits to uh, to uh, direct mr biden on how to get to the debate and find out where it is and and know what state it's in and all of that kind of stuff but anyway interesting and uh, we continue to go along with uh, our uh, Pandemic and people are staying home and listening to America's Web Radio, I might add, which we are very thankful for. And we have Agent in Charge is on right now, and we have the Agent in Charge on the other line coming to you from Texas. Which, uh, how are you all doing out there, Sandy? Good. Good morning, Dave. First, I just want to apologize. I, you know what? Uh, I had to skip on you last week because. You know, we, we, everybody knows by now we ranch and we had just the perfect opportunity to put down fertilizer and it happened to be last Wednesday and an all day job, but we're back, got everything out right before big rain came in. So weather is good, it's humid and everything's growing. So everything's good for, at least for me in Texas right now. That's super. <laughs> I, I haven't checked with my farmer lately, but, uh, I know he had some great topsoil moisture so he should be planting planting just about any time i'd say probably around the first of may we'll he'll throw some cotton in the ground and uh hopefully we can keep these rains up for you for uh uh east texas or central east texas and also for um the panhandle it would be nice to uh make another crop this year it'd be two in a row i don't i i'm not sure my little dryland farm can handle two in a row but that'd be nice we'll my, take it. my little brother who's up in maine uh don don bostic uh he and i are always always in contact with each other and, and he tells me it's still winter up there so all you folks up there in maine that we're getting ready to they were we're predicted to go to 91 degrees down here so wow say a little a little distance makes a lot of difference doesn't it so oh yeah where whereabouts in maine is he I knew you were going to ask me that. I'm just trying to remember the name of the town now. He's so, uh, uh, it wouldn't Portland, be Portland. Portland, is, yeah. Portland. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my ex-wife and I uh, went up to Maine several years ago and, and a beautiful, beautiful state. And it was um, it was around Thanksgiving and that we were up there. And uh, it was... Uh, Rather messy, not not a lot of snow, but just uh, enough sleet to make it uh, make you suck your breath in every now and then, you know. And uh, right, right. So, it, uh, but a wait. beautiful state. Yeah, going back to what you were saying, I mean, just before we get into our our topic today, I was just gonna say, yeah, this is uh, not only with with uh, Bernie Sanders dropping out of the race, and, and I, you know, more or less Biden, you know, I, unless there's something planned for the convention i mean he looks like he's going to be the guy from the democrats and, but what's going to be really unique and you know, as we know everything you read now you can't pull up any of the news uh news outlets without reading about coronavirus 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 but 
you know, uh, back in the last time I worked at a uh, at a uh, convention was the Republican National Convention in Philadelphia in 2000, and I was detailed in the Secret Service. And I think we discussed this before, that during an election year back uh, uh, at that time, when we were still the U.S. Customs Service, you know, they would detail customs agents and IRS agents and uh, the ATF agents and also, uh, uh, I'm, to, I'm sure I'm leaving somebody else out here. But anyway, they would detail us. We were all under Treasury. They would detail us to go work those conventions. They were big deals. You know, I mean, there's a lot of people there. There's a lot of activity. And so I just, uh, they're talking about doing these virtual uh, uh, conventions now. And it's going to be interesting. I don't, I don't know how you go. Know, the whole <laughs> the whole idea about the uh, convention is to fire up the party. I don't know how you're going to fire them up virtually. You know? What do you think about that? Well, I think you've heard the old saying, you heard it here first. I I think, quite frankly, there is a sleeper in the closet that's going to be announcing when nobody else would think anybody would announce. He may announce on October the 28th, for all I know. But right. somebody's running, and nobody's, well, a lot of people are paying attention to him, but they don't accept the fact that he's running. But Como is running for president, folks. I have no doubt. And, uh, you know, he's running every... Can you imagine? Nobody's getting... Even... Uh, well, certainly Biden's not getting the attention, nor is anybody else getting the attention that Como's getting. And he's getting it every day with his news conference. And you don't think that's not planned? Hello? Yeah. Well, I, I know the one who would like to get in there. I, I don't know if he wants to go this this go around or wait to twenty. 2024, but I think Mark Cuban, I think that uh, oh, yeah. he's trying to set himself, himself, it sounds like he's trying to set himself, but he's he's trying to sound and, and look more presidential, but like I say, yeah, he's not getting the airtime that Cuomo is right now. And, so, and uh, it's not costing Cuomo anything. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, like I say, he's up there every every day, you know, every day. But unfortunately, it's because they were so far behind the curve that they that, you know, that, uh Everything out there right now is what was in crisis mode, and so of course your crisis always makes the news. So I don't know. In my opinion, it's not the press he's getting. I mean, but then again, you know, people see things differently. I may be wrong, but it's just in my personal opinion, he's not getting good press right now. Well, so, uh, you know, any any press is good press. Um, yeah, according to Jerry Jones, Dallas Cowboys. Yep, <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah. right. And uh, you know, I. Uh, it, the funny thing about Como is, and I, I did this. I was, you know, playing around in the in my living room, uh, and and maybe it's because New York and New York. But if you close your eyes and you're listening to Como, he sounds an awful lot like Trump. If you yeah. don't know who's on, and just close your eyes, and I don't know if it's the New York. Accident, whatever you want to call it, or, or just, uh, and he's certainly, nobody can argue with me on this, he's trying his darndest to sound presidential. And, uh, you know, a very authoritative and, you know, this, this, and either this, and da 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 da. And I'm telling you, the guy's running for president. And um, you heard it first on America's Web Radio. on. <laughs> You, yeah, you may. They may bring you back into the service and have you garden him. Who knows? 
Well, I'm, I'm a little slow on the draw these days. A few years ago, I would have been, been up for it, you know. But, you know, an interesting point that I tell people, and the true story, is that I won't give you the name of the bar, but it's been there for years. It's, it, it's uh, still there, and, and uh, it's a, uh, a place in D.C. where, you know, all the, uh, the uh, people from the Hill, uh, Republicans, Democrats, Congress, uh, uh, Senate, they, uh, it's kind of an after hours place where they do a happy hour and stuff. And, and uh, we would go in there from time to time when I was an agent working in that area of Baltimore and DC area. And mostly we were looking for, uh, fugitives and people that were spying on our, our, uh, uh, representatives, you know. And, and, uh, it was just a good place to kind of, you know, see what was going on. And we also had some informants working in there that would let us know if there was something. Not so much, not, not with the, the congressman. We were just like say it was a good place to go and, and try to figure out where the, the high level, uh, white collar criminals were, were, who they were meeting with. And so, and anyway, you'd see a lot of, uh, you'd see a lot of, uh, the congressmen in there. And, and the funny thing is that even this is, this is back in, you think, the mid 1980s. I'm not sorry, mid 1990s. And so, uh, but you know, you would, uh, see Democrats and Republicans alike in there. They're the best of friends. They really are. They're drinking together, having a good time. But you see them the next night on television, and they hate each other. <laughs> but we used to always laugh at it. It was, it was a lot like the old WWE wrestling, you know. I mean, it was a good show on TV, but once the cameras were off, I mean, they were all pals. You know, you know they were probably more business got carried on and taken care of in there than it did in Congress. Right, no, it did. That's very true. So, like I, said, I, I can't give you the name because uh, then I, I'm sure they, uh, the agency's still going there to, uh, as we say, troll for information. And, and so, uh, and, I, and I don't want to get the, uh, the the legislators mad at me, so, but, uh, <laughs> but it's there and it still goes on. And I'm sure it's the same thing. I, I doubt nothing's changed in the last 25 years since I was there. You know, so and uh, but anyway. Well, anyway, well, hey, what I wanted to talk about uh, just a little bit because this this definitely goes with the uh, the uh, what's going on with the virus and the uh, state of crisis that the country has kind of found itself in here recently. And I wanted to talk. You know, I spent a lot of my career down on the, uh, the southwest border, and uh, I've gone up to the northern border to pick up uh, pick up fugitives that were uh, uh, indicted in cases of mine that were arrested trying to get in and out of the country. And, so, you know, I, I know in total, uh, I had about 15 years on the border doing border enforcement and, uh, uh both as a uniformed, uh, customs inspector, that's a customs agent, then a Homeland Security Investigations, uh, agent when we formed Home Department of Homeland Security. And, uh, just kind of, you know, first just kind of, you know, discuss, hey, because unless you spend a lot of time on the border, it's kind of hard to understand the border and what goes on there. And so what I want to first, you know, go into this, just in a little detail, give you an idea of, you know, who's there, how they got there. And I spoke to a friend of mine just a couple of days ago. He's still with the DEA and, and uh, works in Mexico. And some of the stuff he's telling me that's going on, that's interesting as a result of this, of this virus, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, but anyway, so when uh, the, uh, the borders as we know it, of course, you know, were... Uh, established when uh, when we won our independence, and the new federal government was founded in 1789. And so uh, the uh, Secretary of the Treasury, okay, was in charge. They they invented the, back at this time. They invented the U.S. Customs Service, and they were we used to say, and it was pretty much the same slogan until they until uh, customs went away. 
was that they were there to protect the revenue of the country and also uh, also to promoting and regulating international trade. Same job. It was, went on for over 200 years there. And uh, and then also under the uh, the, uh, the the Treasury it was at the Immigration Service. But, of course, back then, immigration is not what it is now. I mean, it was, they were really encouraging. There was nobody hardly here on all this land, and so they were trying to get people here to, to, to sell the frontiers. And so, they, of course, they had you know a lot limited, lot less, a lot limited, more limited funds, and uh, the record keeping was not computerized by any means, of course, and it was all done by hand. So, trying, they we've been trying to keep a handle on, on what goes on, you know, in and out of the country since 1789. Okay, so when uh, so the immigrations. The, the immigration enforcement and the customs enforcement were under the Treasury, Secretary of Treasury, and uh, up until I believe it was 1903, and that's when uh, the Department of Commerce and Labor took over immigration, and so they split split past then. But interesting, I mean, but the border back then, of course, as we know, if you know much about the history of Texas, you know it was it was a Mexican territory up until. 1836, at which, at which time Texas became independent, and so you know the border kind of fluctuated. But now the U.S. all of a sudden had the 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 border as we know it today was pretty much like it it was back in about 1850. So in 18 commonly known was, as the Rio Grande, right, right, yeah, that's the. Well, I worked most of my border time on the Rio Grande, and yeah, except for a little bit of time I was in El Paso. Uh, you know, we covered out further over into New Mexico, where the, the Rio Grande is, is actually comes through New Mexico, but it's not part of the border until it, it, it actually hits the corner of Mexico, Texas, and New Mexico. Oh, I oh, and, I gotta, uh, I gotta. Uh, I was watching. I love westerns. That's my passion, and I, and I hated to see that. Uh, James Drury died uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact. And, uh, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't hear that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was 85 and uh, died in Houston, as a matter of fact. I wow. didn't even know he lived there. But uh, anyway, I was watching a uh, uh, Western, and I, I can't remember. It wasn't John Wayne. I, I, I can't remember who it was, a name, but uh, anyway. But they were uh, they were on a cattle drive, which I've done in the past in New Mexico, not in in Texas, but in New Mexico. But anyway, um, you know there was trouble, and they were driving them uh, uh, down from uh, or up from Mexico into Texas, and uh, the there was a sheriff that was from Texas, and he was going to arrest the. Uh, the uh, ramrod for something he had done in Texas, and so they get to the middle of the Rio Grande, and the and the uh, guy that was going to be arrested said, "Where is the border? Is it halfway? Is is uh, midway of the Rio Grande the border, or is it the land portion of it?" So I'll ask you, where is it? Is it uh, do, does the Rio Grande <laughs> the middle, split? The middle of the river. Because that was always a uh, an issue when I was in Del Rio. You know, there's a big lake there. It's where the the Devil's River, uh, the Pecos River, and the Rio Grande come together. And there's a, uh, a dam. It's called Amistad Dam, and uh, it's a beautiful lake. And it's uh, it's one of the most highly fished lakes. You know, they uh, as far as uh, tournament fishing probably in the country. And there's a lot of professional fishermen that live on it. But you know, half of the lake lies in Mexico, and half lies on our side. 
And so that was always a, an issue. You know, we now and it's marked in the middle of the lake. It is marked uh, with buoys as when you're in Mexico and when you're in the United States. And so technically, I mean, if you're fishing on the U.S. side, you know, you have to have a uh, have to have the U.S. Uh, fishing license. Mexican side, you're supposed to have the Mexican fishing license. But uh, but it, for the most part, the lake was uh, the biggest part. I think it was used for was smuggling narcotics. That's why we were out there. We yeah. we would fish undercover and, and wait for these guys to cross loads over and try to catch them. And, and uh, but uh, to answer your question, it's it's right down the middle of the river. And so and that's been going on even since I was a game warden. When I would uh, go down and, and we would check uh, nets on the uh, Rio Grande River. You know, for gill nets, you'd have to make sure that the, any on the Mexican side, they're allowed to use gill nets, which are illegal on the U.S. side. And so, uh, so yeah, so it still goes on. It's still hmm. a, uh, it's still highly contested down there, and and you can get yourself in a jam pretty quick. Now, the thing about the border is that it doesn't matter where you cross the border today. Now, this has changed over time because, yeah, like I say, they actually started patrolling the the the, uh, the Rio Grande and, and the the uh, U.S. border with Mexico about 1853. And those were the U.S. Mounted Customs Inspectors. And eventually, after the uh, Chinese Exclusion Act, which was in 1882, if I remember right, uh, they formed what was the Bureau of Immigration in, uh, I'm sorry, let me find the name here. Bureau of Immigration, oh, I'm sorry, U.S. Immigration Border Patrol in 1924. So they, they called them the Immigration Patrol. And so, uh, so they're both basically doing the same job. One was looking for, you know, uh, fugitives and looking for uh, whatever was illegal at the time, and, and which is mostly probably cattle going in and out of, of Mexico. But the immigration issue didn't really get kicked up until uh, until uh, uh, until about 1920. And then we, I'm sorry, 1882 hmm. with the Chinese Exclusion Act. But anyway, so. But of course, what really changed everything was the Volstead Act in the 1920s, when they made uh, you know uh, alcohol illegal to possess in the United States, which of course created the biggest black market <laughs> in all time until until the until the drug business came along. <laughs> so, like I tell, I tell a lot of people, I said, you know, the thing about the United States is unique because back around 1900, pretty much everything was legal. There was really no regulation of any devices, and it wasn't until we started regulating devices that all of a sudden we created cartels and and uh, Al Capone and his bunch, and they started making tons of money off of selling, you know, black market liquor and, and, and narcotics. You know, well, so let me ask you, Sandy. The uh, obviously the states within the United States have uh, hot pursuit agreements. Do, do, and this would be an international thing between the United States and Mexico. Do, is there a, uh, an agreement like that? If, you, if you're in hot pursuit, can you cross the border? No, you can't. That, that ended uh, back uh, in my career. We never had that. And so, obviously, uh, you know, most people, what they think of, they think of the, the southwest border. It's what you see on television. Like you say, the old westerns, and I, uh, I think one of the funniest scenes of all time was Jack Nicholson and, and uh, what was the name of that movie he was in? Where he had crossed, he was running from the law. He got across over to the Mexican side. He goes, ah, he's over. He's, he's talented guys, the, the Texas Rangers, and you can't come get me. And they just rode right across the river and grabbed him, grabbed him, <laughs> took him back to Texas. You know, something and, like the uh, hell we can't. Right, but no, but no, you're required by both countries. Okay. Uh, when you enter either one, you know you have to you have to first clear customs and then clear immigration. 
And so uh, and they, but this is done, you know. But they they, they check you if you are driven through. And if you go to airports, it's the same thing, you know. They you know the used to the when I first started, you had an immigration inspector and you had a customs inspector. Now they've converged the two jobs, customs and border protection. You have this one inspector or one officer, as they call them now, at the border, and they're checking your uh, passports, do you visas you may have. And also, they're uh, they're checking you know to see if you're if you're a fugitive, uh, if you're nervous, if you possibly sitting off the contraband, which is most of the time is narcotics uh, coming in from the south and, and illegal money going out, uh, go I mean coming going from the north south, you know. And so, uh, but but the thing is, I mean, uh, and the and a point that a lot of people don't realize that there's only uh, two agencies that uh, have border search authority and uh and that is the uh, border patrol u.s i'm sorry there's three actually that's the uh, u.s border patrol uh of course uh, customs and border protection and homeland security investigations and ice which they're under the same department ice and hs and hsr are under the same department and uh but you know and they they get the, those are the only agencies that by by u.s law the 18 U.S. Code is the uh, uh, the 13 U.S. Code, which gives you the uh, immigration, and then the 18 U.S. Code, which gives you the customs authority to do border searches and inspections. Hmm. And so, uh, you know, the FBI doesn't have it, the ATF doesn't have it, IRS doesn't have it. Now they can be deputized by an HSI special agent in in, the, in a time of crisis or need that they can. They can work under that uh, HSI or CBP uh, officer or patrol agents under their authority once they're deputized. But it's a temporary it's a temporary situation where you, you know, you've got to be able to explain why you deputize this person. It, it can be a, it can be anyone actually. It, it can it can be anyone that that the, that the customs officer, immigration officer is needing assistance. He can deputize anyone to help him by by law. Let's let and people so, think uh, about that a second, and uh, we'll take a break. I was a little bit of a, taking a nap at the switch, so we'll be back <laughs> right after this. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You can keep your doctor, you can keep your plan, and every family will save thousands of dollars a year. I'm Ellen Deal, and if you've been hurt by the Affordable Care Act, you can email MAGA45CAG at gmail.com to see if we can help. Small business owners, individuals, families, and baby boomers, email MAGA45CAG at gmail.com for three easy questions to determine if you can get away from Obamacare. I'm a 20-year veteran of the insurance industry and here to help you for all your insurance needs. 
Whether they're cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we're back with Agent in Charge. And uh, like like we've said many, many, many times on uh, America's Web Radio is that what is happening off the air is sometimes more fun than what's happening on the air. Yet I'm having a ball listening to... Uh, Sandy tell his stories about uh, the borders, and I and this is like, you know, Sandy. We uh, the number of different unique shows that we do on America's Web Radio. I would venture to say almost ninety percent, ninety nine percent of the shows that we do um, are so informative, and people don't have a clue. It's like the one that we do with General Dix. Uh, Talking about Desert Storm and Desert Shield, he was uh, a general under uh, Storm and Norman, and uh, you know, uh, people had and still have no idea about some of the things that went on. And uh, just the information, I, I lived most of my uh, well, my first uh, 25 years in Texas, and uh, crossed the border a few times, going to a. Uh, a place called Juarez. I'm sure you've heard of that. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah that's been my, it's been my last two years right across the border from Juarez. El Paso so, South. El Paso. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, when you're in high school, that's where you go. And uh, they, may, they may think that the Army makes a man out of a boy, but Juarez does a pretty damn good job of it, too. Um, but we won't go <laughs> into that. Juarez <laughs> was a uh, a very very dangerous city. Uh, I want to say less than ten years ago. I'd have to go back and look, but you know it's it settled down quite a bit now. I mean, there's there's always a, a struggle in Mexico for who's as they call each each area of Mexico. You know, especially on the border, the cartels control it, and they call it the plaza. And the plaza is owned by a particular. Uh, cartel person that they put in charge of it and uh and and the plaza in uh in juarez has always been one of the hottest ones around the nation uh, as, as far as texas goes it was, it was uh, uh el paso and laredo are the two hot spots and well, then of course you get out in california san diego and uh, nogales arizona is, is hot as well yeah. it's always been that way so. well now we're talking we're talking though and juarez was even as a teenager, you you had to be aware, but not it wasn't. Um, they they liked our dollar bills more than they cared about knocking us on the head, you know. Or and this was fifty years ago, fifty five years ago, and um, you know they were they were more interested in our our money and more interested in uh, there and there wasn't a real drug problem back then, so. Um, you know, if there yeah, was, it wasn't that that blatant, right? Where where I spent most of my time was at Eagle Pass, Texas, and, and Del Rio, Texas. Yeah, both towns are right around the border. And uh, and this, you know, my wife and I know, and my family. I mean, and we all used to spend a lot of time over in Mexico. My wife doing business with her horses and shopping, and then mm-hmm. we would go to the different restaurants, and it was very safe. 
when it all changed was about, I'm going to say around 2004, 2005, when the uh, the Zetas, everybody's heard of the Zetas, the, uh, they more or less uh, started coming into power, and they were really some of the most ruthless of the ruthless uh, drug smugglers on the on the border. And that's when everything changed. They really just came in, they took over police departments, took over areas, and, and uh, it just became real unsafe to go over there. And uh, people were getting robbed all of a sudden, and, and you know, you, you took the car over to have it worked on by a mechanic <laughs> in Mexico. I mean, it may, it may come back, it may not come back. If they yeah. drove by and thought they liked it, they just kept the car, you know. And so, uh, yeah, but my understanding that it's kind of settled down now, and you can go over there, and, and uh, but you still, it's not like it was back when we were kids. Oh, no, true. back in the, uh, I remember back in the, um 60s 1962 or three somewhere in that neighborhood a friend of mine had a beautiful beautiful 57 impala and uh, he took it to mexico and he got as good a rolling pleat job on the front and back seat as you could get anywhere and about right, yeah. probably about 25 to 30 percent the cost of having it done in lubbock and uh, you know the the trick was if it was going to take two hours, you stayed there two hours. If it was going to take 12 hours, you stayed there 12 hours. Um, with your car. <laughs> with your car, absolutely. <laughs> but, yeah, but like they, it, it wasn't that way when we first moved down there, and that was back in the uh, 92, 93, and, uh, you know, we used to cross over to Mexico quite a bit. And uh, But then I, by the time I, I left, I actually left the border the first time, uh, that would have been in 2008 and 2009 and uh, it had changed I mean we got to where we didn't go over there at all and uh, especially because you know the, once the drug trafficking really picked up and and uh, we were knocking down one load after another and, and all types of violence was going on up and down the border it's just uh, it just wasn't safe especially people in the the uh, the law enforcement business on the U.S. side to go over there, yeah. and so uh, it's unfortunate. I have a lot of friends in Mexico, and I, and I love the country. I mean, it's a beautiful country. You know, the and, the, uh, the thing people don't understand is, and and we overlook it as a country, as a people, so many times. But I, when I farmed, and even when I worked in construction, I had some very good Mexican friends. And they're people just like we are. And they, you know, and I, I, I wish that with our border situation, it's sort of like um, going to Jamaica and looking at how they live. And you go to Mexico, and, and there's some fine, fine, fine people in Mexico. And you can't blame them. You, you look at how they live in some cases, not in all cases, and and I will give Mexicans credit for this. They may it may look like a cardboard shack, but if it's theirs, they're very proud of it. And you'll have the woman planting uh, flowers out in front of it. They'll have she'll have the husband doing whatever's necessary to make that cardboard look better. And you know they're they're and they're very proud people. And they'll be the first. I when I was working construction. Um, and I ate lunch every day with a, and worked side by side with a, with a bunch of Mexicans, and they would tell you, "Hey, we know where we came from. We're part Indian and part Spanish. Now, where did you come from?" Well, <laughs> yeah, 
uh, a little bit of Americans English? have a hard time until was Ancestry dot com came along. Most Americans didn't answer that question. You're right. So, and I, I wonder. I wonder how much of that Ancestry dot com is really true because you kind of. Whenever I hear somebody come back, oh, I'm you know part Indian and part I came or I came from a uh, a tribe in Mongolia or something like that. I think yeah, right. You know, so, but uh, <laughs> and then I'm there's sure, uh, and then maybe there's you did, uh, maybe you did so and then there's uh, Pocahontas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that uh, that's one. Of the, that's probably one of her biggest regrets. Yeah, you know, and, and uh, so but. But anyway, but you know, but I saw I tell you how things have changed on the border, and I say the northern border too. I mean, because you know, I'm always like I tell people, I said, you know, smuggling is just like water. Once it's under pressure, it goes to the place of least resistance, and so the uh, the border has uh, really been beefed up. I mean, starting with the, that's one thing about the, even though a lot of us did not really agree with the developing uh, the Department of Homeland Security and putting everybody under there and, and, and there was a lot of pain and it was, you know, came along with that and a lot of inefficiency but the thing is what it really did do was it beefed up the border and it made it tougher for people to get too small you know narcotics uh, dangerous materials and people in and so just for example like when I uh, moved from Baltimore to Del Rio this was in uh 1999, sorry, 1999, and, uh, no, sorry, it was 2000, it was in 2000 when I transferred down there, uh, I was, there were seven customs agents, and I was, uh, I was agent number seven, I was replacing a guy who had left, and, uh, when I left there, uh, oh, ten years later, we had, uh, the office had grown to about 20 agents, and with our task force officers, we had anywhere between you know, 25 to 30 people at a given time and working out of the office. And so, uh, and then everybody else, the U.S. Marshal Service, uh, they went from about five to six guys there. They, they used to work with us all the time. And, and they, uh, with, the, with the increasing cases and, and uh, all the things that they were uh, involved in, and, you know, protecting the courts and all, they, they quadrupled in size. Border Patrol has done the same thing. So there's a lot more law enforcement down there and you don't only have just the uh, the border people you also have the fbi they're in the, the major cities down there now and and uh you've got several of the different agencies and of course the dea's there and uh they uh they work mostly with the border patrol on the, the cases that that the border patrol that they intercept as far as drugs go so you've got a lot of people down there uh when i first got down there there were maybe two i think we had two or three dea agents that were in the same office with us and now of course you know they're they're just as big as hsi if not bigger and uh because there's just so much going on and uh, so it, it, it has changed a lot uh probably for the better but then again with the uh with the uh increase in population of course you have you just have more opportunity and more of a need in the black markets to get people across and and to, to get uh let's say say in, the old customs language of prohibited merchandise across, which is narcotics, <laughs> uh, weapons, whatever, you know, that's illegal, you know, that, that we created a black market in. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I'm an old, old timer, I reckon, but, you know, I look at all the stuff that's going on today and, and has been for the last four, five, six years, ten years now. And uh, I think back about when when I was farming back in the uh, early 60s, and, you know, it was nothing to have uh, 100 
Mexicans in my field at one time when they were when they were weeding hoeing, and uh, you know, and then I always had one or two Mexican families that lived on the farm with me, and I provided them uh, a house, and uh, you know, and we would. Uh, Whenever we needed people, we'd go through the gin, and uh, that's not the liquid gin. That was a cotton gin, and uh, right. they would supply us with however many people that we needed, and they were all green cards. And, um, you know, there were just, I don't know. I I don't know what changed. I got out of farming, and so a lot of things changed. Um, but... We just didn't really, you know, and, and every now and then you'd you'd get a drunk Mexican, and that's not any, they're not a whole lot worse than a drunk white person, you know. And uh, it, it just, well, things just changed, and I was happy with the way they were. And, uh, you know, then we get into an education battle, then we get into a medical battle, and, and um, I hate I hate when I've got some bleeding heart in here that, oh, you know, they come across and they take advantage of our, no, you know, they're humans. I don't want to, I don't want to have my wife have a baby in the middle of the street. My God, that's what we have hospitals for. And that's, you know, it just, we can all look at it very jadily, you know, and that's a shame. Well, the, the problem with Mexico is that it's, it's, it's very similar to a lot of the co- other countries around the world that, you know, they, they have a high level of corruption. I mean, there's a, you know, Mexico is the most affluent, the uh, the richest of the uh, Latin American countries, but probably 5% of the population controls probably 95% of the money. And so there's not much of a trickle-down effect there. I mean, uh, you know, $20 a day working in a uh, Makiadora factory down there is still the last hour is, is still pretty good wages by Mexican standards but then again you know at the same time the price of gasoline is about the same as it is here maybe a little bit cheaper but so you know you look if you got to drive to work every day I mean one day of work you know just is just going to pay for your gas to get back and forth yeah and so you know now things are cheaper down there but for sure and uh, but at the same time I mean that's you know, either such, you know, they want to have a better life, and then you can't blame them for wanting to do that. Of course, you know, we prefer for them to come over here legally as opposed to illegal because we just so just so we can know who's in our country. But you know, I don't remember. I was probably too young time, but I, I've heard the old timers talk about the was it the Bacera Bacero program? Yeah, where it was basically it was you documented uh, people coming over from Mexico to come over here and work. Mm-hmm. And uh, then they would go back and they would sign on the way out. So they had an idea of who was here and what the population was. And, I, and that's one thing I know that they've talked about for a long time. They just can't, nobody can see a degree on how to do it, you know. And, uh, but, you know, the interesting thing about, you look at it historically, I mean, really before uh, World War One, when uh, people started, there became such a, uh, a big, uh, a, probably before World War Two. I mean, you could travel pretty much anywhere in the world you wanted to, as long as you had a passport. There were really no visas around. Now, there were a few. I know the first passport was Henry, King Henry of England, and I, that was probably back in the 1400s. Hmm. He was the first one that started giving passports to his diplomats as they would go to different countries just to prove that, that they were his there to do his business, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, But, I mean, but traveling around the world was uh, was much harder back then. I mean, we could 
could get across the ocean, you were on a ship if you could afford it. And then, uh, but there was not near as much uh, movement of people around the world like there is today. And so, uh, you know, and, and plus, you know, this day was more, it was more difficult to uh, keep records back in those days. But really traveling the world, I mean, you could uh, get your suitcase and you could hop on a ship and go pretty much anywhere, anywhere in the world you wanted to go. You could pack a firearm with you if you wanted to. The, you know, there was just so fewer regulations, but there were a lot fewer people traveling, too. And sure. so, uh, and then there was, then when World War One kind of changed everything, we really had... I mean, there were wars, of course, before that, but that's really where you, all of a sudden you had people from coming all people coming from all around the world to uh, to a central location, and, uh, and and there was they were just trying to find a way to control of who was coming in and out of these countries. So, but uh, but yeah, I mean, the old Pacero program. I mean, I'd like to see them have something like that because uh, you know there's just a lot of these jobs in America today that that we have. I mean, there's nobody here willing to do them anymore. That's right, and, and uh, it was so, it was a that that's exactly the program I was talking about. I, I was that's when I was farming, and it was even still going on in the early seventies because uh, where I'm at in Atlanta, or, or close, not far from where I am in Atlanta, we had a we had a hell of a chicken industry, and uh, you couldn't get people to work in uh, the chicken slaughterhouses, you know. And yet right. the Mexicans would come over and do it. And we paid them slave wages, you know, and, and that was unfortunate, too. I remember I remember uh, when I was farming, we had a, uh, and, and he was a guy, just the nicest person you could hope to meet. And he was working at the gin where I was taking my cotton. And uh, my, the owner of the gym finally told me who he was. He was a doctor from Mexico, and he couldn't make a living being a doctor in Mexico. We all think wow, doctors, yeah. you know, just hang the moon. And uh, the poor guy was working in the back of a cotton trailer at the gym and died of a heart attack. And uh, Wow. It just, you know, he, but he had come here because he wanted to take care of his family. And uh, right. we all shipped in, all of the farmers around that use that gin, we all shipped in to uh, get him back to Mexico. And, and uh, you know, it was just a sad thing. And, and many times I've, I've thought about him and, and thought about the saying of, until you've walked a mile in my shoes. And, you know, we... We look at Mexico very discriminatory. If you say border, everybody says, "Oh, it's a Mexican. It's a southern border." Well, we have a we have a northern border too, and we have we're very fortunate that we have an east and west border. But it happens to be the oceans. But you know, we have. I don't know. Did you ever work the northern border at all, Sandy? Not really. Uh, I, I had to go to Detroit once to pick up a couple of uh, of. Uh, well, they were fugitives, so uh, our inspectors caught them up and coming back in to the country. But I've been up to Detroit. I've been on the northern border, and but never really worked up there. I, most of my time, we call we call the southern border years the dog years because the experience you get on the southern borders is it's like seven to one. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, you, and it really shows up. But I would be when I was on the uh, promotions uh, committees where we would interview the agents that were trying to become supervisors. You can always really tell the guys that came off the border because 
they had, they'd seen and done everything. I mean, they they had real answers and they knew what to do, and and uh, they would just stand out. You know, it's almost the point it was unfair to the guys who spent most of their career in the interior. And so uh, over time, they you know I think when I left, it was it was a requirement that if you got if you came on as an HSI special agent, you had to spend at least three to five years on the southwest border because it's you know it's just you just experience it well it's the old saying drinking from a fire hose you know yeah and uh so they uh but yeah but you get it's a real high speed environment today and man there's just a lot of stuff going on and and uh but uh at the same time you know they they do a really they do a better job now and just because there's the technology so much better and there's so many more people out there and really the training has gotten better and which you know the lessons that we learned uh, that we learned from our predecessors, you know, and, and they trained us, and we we added to that in our uh, in our academy and and uh, in the extended training, and and so you know, they're, they're everybody's sharper than than our first generation was. Let's hold and, that thought, uh, and uh, we got to take a break. We're up against a hard break, so hold that thought, and we'll come back with Sandy talking about the southern border right after this. If your health insurance premium is more than your mortgage, Ellen Deal with Ideal Solutions is here to help. Whether you're a small business owner, individual, family, or baby boomer, email MAGA45CAG at gmail.com, and I'll respond with three easy questions to help you determine if you can get away from Obamacare. As a 20-year veteran of the insurance industry, I'm here to help with all your insurance needs. Email Ellen Deal at MAGA45CAG at gmail.com. Want to give your family or loved one the perfect gift? Then go online and check out the TornadoBodyDryer.com. I love mine and the warm heat air massage it gives me after my shower. The Tornado Body Dryer is super. You'll love it and you'll love having one in your shower. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we're back for the final segment of Agent in Charge. And this has been, you know, our show. I'm so blessed to have you and many in our other hosts that are experts in their field. And, you know, just I learn something almost every hour that I'm here at the station and uh, doing a show and that... um, you know, I had no idea about, even though I, li- I didn't ever live on the border, but I lived on the border state, or lived in the border state, and uh, I had a whole nother perspective of it. And when we were off the air, I asked Sandy about where the drugs come from. And, um, you know, when I was in Texas, we really didn't have, 
I guess it was just maybe at the beginning, back in the uh, in the very early seventies. But I asked Andy, where do the drugs come from? And and you were explaining to me some of them come from Mexico, but a lot of them are shipped in from uh, other parts of South America. Right, yeah. The the majority of what's being uh, produced in Mexico is, uh, they call it, uh, there's two types of heroin, and uh, there's commonly sold in black market, and that's the white heroin that comes out of Afghanistan and uh, comes through the, the Far East, and it's, it's usually smuggled through the shipping uh, ports on the West Coast or through the northern border coming south. But in Mexico, they grow their own uh, poppy plant there, and it's a, a different variety, and uh, they make what they call Mexican brown heroin. And that's what you're seeing coming across mostly on the southwest border as far as heroin goes. Uh, now, the, uh, the methamphetamine business, that's the big deal now because... Back when I first started as an agent, you know, most of the meth, we, we hardly ever saw meth, but it was all manufactured here in, in, uh, in people's backyards and in trailers and, and uh, much like you see the, in the series Breaking Bad. And, uh, but, you know, over time, when they, uh, the, uh, the cartels, they uh, hired actual true chemists and would set up laboratories, and today they, uh, you know, Methamphetamine that comes that comes out of Mexico is some of the best of all time, purest, and uh, and it sells almost at the same price as I understand as, as, as cocaine. Cocaine still comes from the cocaine products still come out of South America, Peru, and Colombia, and that's still the uh, the hub right there. But they say all those come, but they all have to come through the the the, the brown heroin, Mexican brown heroin. The uh, a lot of marijuana is still grown in Mexico comes across and then uh, of course the uh, cocaine and the uh, the laboratory produced methamphetamine they're all if, if, if it doesn't if it's not being manufactured in Mexico it's transiting through Mexico and even when they when it comes in through the uh, by sea when they when they ship it through by boats I mean people are still getting their their piece I mean you, you know the, the cartels are still uh, working with the Colombian cartels to try to keep because you know with them they don't want wars you know, wars are bad they're not profitable and, uh, and so they still try to you know maintain a uh, understanding that even if you're crossing through Mexican water you, you need to pay uh, your, your duties percentage to them your, yeah to them so and so and that and so that, that where the wars come from is when they find out well somebody has slipped a few through and, and they didn't didn't pay the uh, the owner of the plaza you know okay agent so, in uh, charge I gotta ask um, I <laughs> you are talking to mr. naive so I've got to ask this question uh, you bust somebody or you do whatever you do and you've got this load of drugs there so you cut a little hole in it and you stick your finger in and you sniff it or you taste it and you say okay this is so and you know that was from Afghanistan or this is so and so from uh, um, the heart of Mexico or so do, you, do the agents really stick their finger in it and taste it? No. <laughs> you would be you would be a complete fool to do that because you have no idea what's in that package and you have no idea where it came from and you have no idea where it's going so you know that they know they everything when when we uh if you're pretty sure it's marijuana that's usually pretty safe but we, we used to find a lot of times we'd find uh these but these bales of marijuana with cocaine secreted in the middle of it so you just had to always be real careful and uh cocaine and, you know believe it or not i mean i 
I could never have been a coke a coke addict because whenever you cut into a, a bundle of cocaine, it makes me sick. I mean, I, once I get in my lungs, it's just it's like uh, it's like I have the dust ammonia. Whenever my agents would we'd uh, we we see a lot of cocaine, I'd have to get out of the room while they did the processing. But to answer your question, everything is chemically tested. There are te- field test kits for everything and uh, all the different uh, illegal narcotics. And, and uh, the first thing you do before you claim it's anything, you, you know, you just put on gloves, you put on protective equipment, you open up the package as, as safely as possible, test it, and then whatever it tests, positive or negative, or you make your next decision. But no, nobody ever that putting that on their time. They may have done that back in the 60s and 70s, but that stopped long before I got there. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. You've seen that in movies and uh, on yeah. TV and all of this stuff where the... Where whoever, uh, well, I you know, just stick my finger in it and say, "Oh yeah, that's that's good stuff." That's you know. <laughs> well, it's funny when we, you know, because I say so much of what people, not just Americans, they're the world over. I mean, what they perceive uh, law enforcement, special agents, CIA doing, what they see on television, and most time it's not even close to the truth. And uh, just for an example. You know, when you go to trial, I mean, when what they wanted to see the juries was because they had been conditioned. They, they wanted you to see, they wanted to see a case like CSI Miami where everything is perfect and you put all this stuff together and you have all these different videos and, and you have all this proof. And in reality, that's, 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 that's not what happened. You do the best you can with what you got. And, uh, and so, uh, and two, I mean, you know, when you watch a, a movie, you know, they can go in there and do this really great case in an hour and a half, two hours. and. And for example, one of my best cases, a drug case, I, I worked at down in Del Rio, Valley, and, and the Eagle Pass. Uh, we indicted, arrested, and convicted 36 people of the Texas Syndicate and the Mexican Mafia who were smuggling cocaine from Mexico up to Detroit. And uh, the case took me two and a half years. Wow. And uh, and there was a lot of trial and error, and, and uh, we got we got lucky. We got every single one that we indicted. And everybody fled out. We never even came down to uh, the day of the first the, the first day of trial, and then the last guy who was the guy in charge of the uh, of the trucking outfit that was doing the smuggling, he fled out the last minute. And because he still looked at the uh, the, the witness uh, uh, list, and they were all these guys who'd worked for him, you know. And, and it's a feeding frenzy when they figure out that hey, <laughs> if I don't come to the table and, and get a deal and talk, then I'm going to go away for a long time. So but anyway, so but the reality is, I mean, when I talk about that case, when I would show people the folder, they were just amazed because it's a two-year investigation, and how many reports had to be written, uh, how much trial preparation went into it, uh, how many interviews went into it, how much surveillance. I mean, it's, it's a lot of work, and, you, and those those cases don't get made in an hour and a half, you know, like they are on television. And there's just a whole lot more, and, and then too, on top of that, it's not just the. Uh, the, uh, the paperwork and the working with attorneys and the judges and the search warrants, you know, it's working within your own agency and getting the funding. I mean, that's one of the biggest issues, and that's what, you know, that's half of the job of, uh, regardless of which agency you work for as a supervisor, FBI, HSI, DEA, I mean, half of your job is trying to get the money together through the, uh, through the Congress and through your agency to keep your operations running. And so uh, there's there's several uh, different uh, uh, government agencies that, that help these different agencies fund, like HIDA, uh, OSADEF. Uh, those are the big ones for drugs and all. And, and I would always try to get my cases under under OSADEF. And I ran the HIDA task force, so that was easy enough. I had that money coming as well. 
but you know that's like it's everybody. I mean, they, without 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 the money, the the, the you know the, the the wires don't. You know, we don't we can't we can't run the uh, the wires. You can't run your cars. You can't pay people to go out there and do surveillance. You know, right. and so uh, now that that side of the story, I've never heard that you had to go out and get your own funding. <laughs> well, you, you you get a budget. I mean, you, you are budgeted every year. So you know you know that you have a budget and you know how much you need to run on. But when you do have a case like the Operation Powder Trail, the one I was working, and I actually became a supervisor towards the end of it, and, uh, you know, then you have to, I mean, it just takes a lot of money. I mean, we there are, we finally did our big takedown over in Uvalde, Texas. We did, executed 14 search warrants in one day, and it took well over like 100, and, I think there was 130 or 140 uh, special agents and police officers and everybody involved, and everybody had to had to travel in. And, and so when you start putting those people like that in hotels and stuff, I mean, it, it adds up. And so, uh, so if you're if you're really doing the job right, you're going to need more than they budget you for, and they count on that. I mean, they know, but that that, that, that budget is just a baseline. But like I say, but once you get over that budget, you really have to start going in there and justifying it. And too, paying informants is the same thing. They don't do it for free most of the time, unless they're a cooperating defendant. And uh, so you also have to go in there and budget. Okay, you know, I'm going to need twenty thousand dollars to pay this guy for giving us all this information that resulted in all these arrests and seizures. And so you know, that's a different that's a different funding. What they call mechanism or a different pile of money. So is this, but at the same time, you got nowhere to go to get it. You know who, who to ask. Yeah, I started to say, do you go back to uh, uh, Homeland Security or do you go to a senator or do you go? I mean, I, I, I yeah. I, well, well, the biggest. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, no, I just can't fathom what you're saying. I, I, that your job's not to raise money. Your job is to catch the bad guys. Well, in theory, yes. But now, when uh, it was it was less so when we were with, with under Treasury as U.S. Customs, because I got I said in the previous show, you know, our last year, every year the Customs would would uh, print out the the budget, uh, money spent, uh, success. It was kind of a statistical uh, analyst uh, analysis of, of what you did that previous previous fiscal year. And the last year we were Customs, we had uh, we for every dollar we spent. Okay, on law enforcement, we made eighteen dollars, and so, so we were. But that that came from customs duties, and it also came from all the the bank seizures we had made. Uh, you know, when we were customs agent, we didn't have an immigration authority, so we focused strictly on narcotics, uh, technology, uh, everything. You know, that was non uh, person related fugitives, and so. But you know, with uh, when we would take down these big uh, drug organizations, uh, of course, you know the. the it, it didn't make any sense to just put everybody in jail. If you didn't take their assets, once they got out of jail, they got to keep their assets. They they still you know, they still won. So you, you didn't win. You didn't win the fight unless you took the assets as well, which would be their big houses, their cars, uh, real estate, you know, bank accounts, you know. And so as long as you could prove that was derived or commingled with illegal money, drug money, for the most part, then you could. That was it was legal to seize it. So like I say, but the thing is, when we became Homeland Security. Uh, a lot of that expertise was lost because so many of our supervisors at the time they they jumped ship. They were ready. They were they were uh, retirement age, and they saw what a what a pain and, and a fiasco it was going to be. So we lost a lot of that knowledge of the headquarters. Sandy, and I, I hate like hell to do this, but we're out of time. 
you have, oh, you have interested <laughs> me beyond. But and if I if I could go further, I would. But I I can't. Uh, but we got to take this up again, and I want to promote it and talk about you all having to go out and get your own money to fund some of this stuff. That's that's incredible. With that being said, you're listening to America's Web Radio. You've been listening to Agent in Charge, and uh, what a good... You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.